1: An apology from both of us?
2: I think it's it's due. Um, we were just talking offline before we started this, that even we felt guilty about the lack of cycling content, and it's been escalating over time, and it is the title of our podcast, Never Strays Far. But, but I think, yeah, maybe we stray yeah. too far.
1: Uh, it was i think we we did we just it was almost like we'd got lost in the woods and a search party had to get sent out for us and we've come home slightly shamefaced uh, from our expedition into the woods for which we weren't terribly well equipped as well we'd gone off with a maybe just wearing an ordinary pair of sneakers with a very lightweight cagoule and white, half white, a miles white, ha, white sneakers white sneakers half a mars bar in our backpack mm. um it started raining we got lost and yeah. our mums and dads had to bring us back and, and that's I think that's pretty much where we're at. So we've, we've come back, haven't we, slightly shame-faced, a little bit tail between mm. the legs, um, mm. back to the bosom of the cycling world, David, and, yeah. and I think that's very much going to be the, at least the way we start off the first mm. 30, 30, 35 or 40 seconds of today's <laughs> podcast.
2: Tell me about <laughs> what's going on with Taddy, Pogacar.
1: Well, if you were 20, what is he, 20, is he 23 now? It's
2: nice, he's not that old. No,
1: yeah, he's 20, I think he's 23.
2: 21. No, he'd be 22. He's oh, only turned 21 no. the day after last year's Tour de France, his first Tour de France win. So he must turn 22 after his second Tour de France win this year, which well, means he's 22 th- and three months
1: old. How do, is, are you confident with that? Right. I'm on his Wikipedia page now. The boy is three 23 months. He's twenty-three years old. Oh, don't forget, ha! Huh, where where you've tripped up there, everything was very, very accurate, except for the fact you forgot the Tour de France was late. Oh. Uh, there you go. So bad luck. You were on the right lines. Yeah, he turned 23 on the 21st of September this year. So that's, uh, that was close, but no cigar, David Miller. Um, um, that's a shame. So, so the old boy. Um, if, if you were coming towards the end of your career, like Tade Pogacar is at 23, just turned 23, David, and you'd very recently inked. I love that word. That's a sports writer's is, word. You'd inked, inked in no other possible so context yeah. yeah you'd inked a contract for i believe five years with um the the morally unimpeachable uae team emirates operation um for what we believe to be upwards of six million pounds per annum mm. um and then a team Ineos reportedly come in and uh, talk to your people or have their people talk to your people or Maybe no people talk to any people. But it gets reported in the Italian press that um, there might have been a conversation which may or may not have revolved around the offer of a contract with Team Ineos for £18 million per annum. What would you be thinking?
2: <laughs> It'd be tough, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. It's, um... But I guess this is the thing with Tari Pogacar. The fact he chose UAE in the first place Because he was a a hit squad junior, um, under 23, and he went for that sort of fringe team. He's decided that's his character. And hats off to him, because to be honest with you, I think I like probably 99.5% of our listeners. If somebody offered me three times my pay packet to do the same same job, I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to give that some serious thought. I'm not just going to close the door on that one. And you know what? It could even be a game. You're just messing with his head. Because already that can cause conflict within the team. And that's kind of Machiavellian tactics as well from Ineos. Because everyone knows they can do it. (laughs) Which is is also, there's no other team in cycling. No one's got somebody like Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who could literally, if he decides, could uh, ink that contract it's not so it's not kind of one of these mythical uh uh gameplays which i think is probably the most kind of cluster about it it's pre- it's pretty interesting the kind of uh,
1: what well, the fact that it's actually like it sounds possible. ridiculous it sounds ridiculous it probably is ridiculous it's probably a non story but in the back of your mind you're thinking mm, there might be something in it yeah because i mean it's been, because Jamaica, it is it spend is like a
2: 100 million on trying to win the t- tour de france club. for the ne- yeah no, uh, no, no, no. yeah absolutely yeah yeah and on nice football club and geneva and and doing the sub tour marathon if he wants to win the tour de france we will
1: have no qualms spending 18 million a year on guaranteeing that win because to, to some extent, the alternative for him is potentially for the next four or five years to be banging his head against the financial and sporting wall named Tadej Pogacar. And yeah. He could throw an he could throw an awful lot of money at trying to beat Tadej Pogacar and still not come away with the Tour de France. So the short circuit way of that is just eliminate the opposition, isn't it? Just neutralise yeah, the situation. Only opposition. Yeah. It, is, it is. It is. I mean, if that were to be the yeah. case, it would remind me of. You know, in those those kind of seismic big leaps that sports take in terms of their their financial background, yeah, yeah their fi- the, yeah, I mean, that would be we're so used, we've been used for a while now, haven't we, to the kind of single digit multimillionaires, um, you know, but it's been scrabbling around four or five, six six million at the very, very, very top. Mm. But to go from that to very nearly twenty million a year takes the sport onto a, I mean, into a pretty <laughs> uncomfortable place, actually.
2: Yeah, it goes to it goes to where you'd have to the UCI would have to confront salary caps and all those different things that have often F- been... Financial, like fair,
1: financial fair play, fair you play, know. Fair play, yeah. You, you which, is,
2: kind of- <laughs> which is kind of an oxymoron in the first place because yeah. it never has been and it never will yeah. be. But, but you're right, it's just it's the modern world, isn't it? It's, but if we take it with a pinch of salt it, and at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if Tari Pogacar said no to that because he's just seems to be the reason he is so good the reason he is what he is he's just cruising through this and is quite well, his, content
1: with what he's got yeah his first couple of tours with uaut Memorats mm. haven't gone badly have they nah you know you know they've, track done, they've, pretty good. they've, they've, they've done okay but you're it's not, right. i mean doesn't need to it fix it <laughs> but the i mean let's face it he has got pretty wealthy backers himself so if there is yeah. a you know if there is a bit <laughs> of true if there is a bit of poke, wanna, poker play going on, you know, um, <laughs> if you want to game, I, if you want to play, once yeah. David, once I started off as in sports broadcasting, working for Sky Sports, and um, I was only once in my life have I ever been offered a job, you know, kind of like in inverted was headhunted, I, a, th- a very short-lived enterprise called the ITV Sport Channel offered me essentially more than twice what I was on at Sky Sports. We're not talking Tadej Pogacar figures here, by the way, (laughs) Um, but I did have in the back of my mind, you know, I very nearly said yes and bit their hands off, but I did have in the back of my mind this kind of accepted wisdom that you you don't just accept that. You go back to your, you know, you play the game a little bit. So I went back to the boss of Sky Sports who went, oh, good luck to you. <laughs> and then he said um, and just as i left his office looking rather shamefaced he said he said um you know there's no way back don't you so, <laughs> and he was quite right there was no way back to sky Sport. Um
2: negotiating so, 101 by Ned bolting uh,
1: so that went well <laughs> and here i am here i am many li- years later doing a podcast for free <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> 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 our various oh, diff- our, our different good. paths that have ended up yeah. ended up here yeah. hawking hawking beer mats oh by the way yeah I've still, oh, they're doing, still really, only... well. They're well, doing really well they've gone they've gone mate we've got a few no. left over actually we've got like can you see I'm holding up like, I've uh, got yeah. like about a, a little 15, stack 12 packets there yeah. yeah I thought we might just hold them back for like lucky you know we could have like but you know what, what? the before. thing is yeah. it's
2: it's kind of it's got exponential growth potential because it's compounding because we're going to have the, the Irish cover. We're yeah, going to have well, well this, is the the cover. Cover. this is the
1: Irish cover. This is the first Never Stray's yeah. File because even though I'm back yeah. in Lewisham now and you're in Girona, I actually only flew in um, from Ireland uh, last night. So I think we should crack on. We've got actually quite a packed agenda here, David. Yeah, let's um, do it. We're going to return to cycling in its various different guises with an emphasis, I think, on Ireland. Um, oh... <laughs> That was amazing. Why? I don't know where that's coming from. Hold on, wait. You said Ireland. <laughs> I did. I literally. I don't know why. I, it's. Oh, I don't know where it's come from. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need to close that down. I need to need to stop that. That's. <sighs> <sighs> Sorry, I, I've already started pre-editing some sections. So that was a little preview of something that you're about to hear. And I've got the editing uh, program open on my laptop. I just as can't well. believe it happened. The moment you said Ireland, it just came. <laughs> <it off. laughs> It was mad, wasn't it? Um, anyway, first of all, David, um, science—we've got a, a science update or two, haven't we?
2: It's about uh, the J- just to do our with. closest planetary body. It's not a planet, but our moon. Well, yeah, before uh, that, satellite that, I mean, to I'll, our planet.
1: Come to that in a second. Before that, I think it's worth including this contribution. Thank you very much uh, for this audio contribution because they're the ones we like for to, uh, email to us at hi <laughs> I'm not even making a... God. How I
2: won the yellow jersey.
1: H-I-W-T- How I won the jumper.
2: Jumper, I will say jersey.
1: <laughs> How I won the yellow jumper at h-i-w-t-y-g-a at gmail.com. James De Winter managed to crack the code of the email address and send us uh, this uh, a very, very interesting... Um, uh, if slightly long, James, but no, no, I'm not. I'm not complaining about that. Four minutes of um, physics is about all I can take. But I hope you enjoyed James's excellent explanation of how a sonic boom happens. And um, as James explains, this is um, the kind of explanation that he uses to explain physics to teenagers.
3: Hi, Ned and David. It's James here from Cambridge, and I've been listening with great interest to your explorations in the world of physics. And I thought I'd get in touch to talk about sonic booms and why they happen, or at least give you a model as to to get a sense about why they occur. Uh, I spend my days Educating physics teachers, so I take clever physics and engineering graduates, and I help them work out the best way to explain complex physics ideas to teenagers. Now, it might be a bit patronizing to treat you like teenagers, so I don't really want to start there, although judging on David's comments about there being no gravity on the moon, it might be the best starting point. So, let's go. The first starting point is we've got to imagine what is a wave. A wave is really a lump of energy getting information from one place to another. So light waves, sound waves, you can just imagine it as taking information or energy from one place to another. And all waves do the same job. They take energy from one place to another place and different waves have different speeds. Lots of waves have a very similar speed um, around the speed of light and oddly light travels at the speed of light as do other electromagnetic waves. Sound travels pretty quickly, 330, 340 metres a second, but clearly nowhere near as fast as light. So let's have a model for trying to seeing that because we can't see these waves, which is a bit annoying. So if you imagine I'm a sound wave producing device, I'm holding a tennis ball and I throw that tennis ball and that tennis ball represents that lump of energy flying off, taking its information at a distance. And that's fine, no problem, cope with that. So I'm producing waves, I'm sending out these packets of energy, these tennis balls at regular intervals. And that's fine, they all fly off into the distance. But if I start running forward as I'm throwing these tennis balls and these packets of energies, what we can see is as I get faster, each subsequent tennis ball is going to start catching up a bit more with the one in front. And the faster I travel, you know, the smaller the distance between any one wave and the one that comes after it. And so I'm producing my waves. I'm sending them out at a regular amount, at a regular speed. But if I start chasing after them, traveling at the same speed what's going to happen is these waves are going to start catching up with each other. And the critical point is, if I start moving at the same speed as these waves, I'm sending them out, throwing these tennis balls, but I'm running after them. And what we can start to see is these waves are going to start to catch up with each other. They're trying to run away from me, flying off at whatever speed they want to go. But the next one is chasing after it at exactly the same speed. So we get to this point where compared to me, They're all flying off at 340 metres a second or whatever it is. But compared to each other, they're all catching up, all these little pockets of energy. And when you get to exactly the right speed, when they're trying to go away, but the next one is travelling exactly the same speed, all these lumps of energy combine together and make a big lump of energy. Uh, And so in this case, that's where you would hear a sonic boom. So the key idea is that the sound wave is trying to get away from the thing making it your aeroplane. And that's fine. But because the plane is moving essentially the same speed, all the waves are catching up with each other. And any individual wave, any individual tennis ball on its own is quite loud. But when they all bunch up together, you get much, much greater amount of energy. And therefore, in the case of sound waves, you get a much louder sound. Interestingly, the same kind of stuff doesn't quite happen with light. But that's certainly for chapter five of your book on Einstein. So there we are hopefully that gives you a model of what's going on. Like everything in physics, we have a simplified model that broadly explains the phenomena, and there's a whole load of more complexity that could be explored. But I think for the process of today, hopefully that gives you a sense about why you get your sonic boom. Cheerio! Right, so David, that's the sonic boom.
1: That's how that happens. Um, you got into all sorts of confusion about the moon, didn't you, um, last time Ed?
2: Yeah, and... um. You I claimed
1: you claimed there was no gravity- we were talking about the tides in the baltic well, I... there has to be yeah, I know there, there is
2: gravity in the moon, but I don't understand anyway
1: yeah
2: we have input well, we
1: we we have we have input, and I'm just trying to check the name It came from matt um that's all I've got on them. Matt Cook who um uh, sent us this little update about the moon and facts about the moon.
4: Hi, Ned and David. thank you for the last podcast really really enjoyed it um you had me laughing so much at the bit about the moon um it was just perfect timing so i had a, a rubbish day and i just needed a laugh and that really helped so uh honestly thank you very much for that i thought i'd sort of help, try and help out with a little bit of fun fun fact i know you love these fun facts uh, about the moon um and Lots of people know that obviously the moon rotates around the Earth and it takes about 28 days, just a bit under 28 days to get around the Earth. Um, So a a year on the moon is 28 days. Uh, But do you know how long a day is on the moon? So the time it takes the moon to rotate around its own axis. Um, So if you pause now, you can have a talk amongst yourself and then uh, afterwards I'll tell you the answer.
1: Right, David. So our little test here is um, that the an, an, an Earth year, I say eight Earth, hours, uh, sorry, eight uh, hours. Uh, let me just get that right again. So the Moon's year it's is twenty-eight, 28 days. days. It's twenty-eight days. So how how yeah, how long does it take to spin on its axis? Axis. How long is a day on the Moon? I Super think fast,
2: it's, right? Uh, it's either four hours or eight hours.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm going. I'm going pretty rapid. I mean, it's much, it's got to be much less, much smaller than the earth. Okay. So if it's, um, I just, all I'm thinking of is, is when the moon landings were going on,
2: they'd have the blackout. Was a blackout 40 minutes and, or was it an hour, which means it would be in two hour or 40, 80 minutes.
1: Yeah. I like your thinking. I'm going for, I'm
2: going for 80 minutes.
1: Uh, 80 minutes. Oh uh, yeah. What, one, one hour, 20 minutes. Yeah. That, that's Every a day. day. That's a day yeah. okay i'm going to go for i'm going to go for um seven hours okay I was yeah, it was my kind of
2: gut was eight hours, but then I was
1: I'm yeah, just I think making stuff up now. well I, I i i i took your opening gambit and um okay. just ran with it good just ran with it okay. okay, so that is um yeah, that's that so um all right' what was well, it? Well, what is the answer well
4: let, let's have a listen to matt's answer so the answer um you have pause, just check you've paused because the answer's coming, so the answer is a day on the moon is actually 365 days. So it takes a whole year in our time for the moon to rotate around its own, own axis, which is why we never see the far side of the moon. Everyone calls it the far side of the moon, the dark side. We never see that because in the time it takes to rotate round, it takes a whole year, so we never actually see the other side of the moon. Anyway, there we go. That's my fun fact for the day for you. Thank
1: you very much for all the podcasts. Love them. So, <laughs> so that's, so <laughs> you so, get one hour, one hour, 20 minutes, I guess seven hours. One year. One year one rotation. One takes t- 365. That's, abso- but it makes sense, doesn't it?
2: I, I guess because, it does.
1: Well, because the, like. Because, because it's Floyd,
2: being held the far side of the moon. You never see the far side of the
1: moon. Not even if you Pink Floyd, you know? Yeah. There is no dark side of the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark. As Sid I, Barrett's, I think that was Sid Barrett's voice on the Dark Side of the Moon album. Anyway, yeah, well, so yeah, that's that so. Yeah, so that pretty, yeah, so that pretty cool. Um, now, I had a subsequent email from Matt Cook.
4: Hi, Ned and David. Pol- many apologies about the fact about the moon. I got it wrong. Um, so I thought I'd just uh, quickly do this to let you know the correct answer. So the correct answer is that the moon rotates around its axis in the same times it takes to rotate around the Earth. So it's just less than 28 days. That's why we never see the uh, the far side of the moon,
1: because as it's
4: rotating around the Earth, it's also rotating around itself, so we never see the far side. Thanks.
1: So it's not, it's not one hour 20 minutes. It's so heartening to hear that Matt Cook... Is as amateur and shabby and <laughs> ill prepared as we are, David. He got it massively wrong. It's not 365 days. It's 28 days, which is the same time as it takes to orbit the sun. It takes to turn on its, e- its own axis, and that's why it's held in a kind of geostationary aspect to us.
2: Uh, so it's almost just being, yeah.
1: Well, okay, we're, that's we're into really that. interesting. No, let really not go there. Yeah, but, no, but we are yeah. into that slight territory, aren't we? Of, of um, the passenger on the train, and you're in a train alongside, and they're not moving relative to you. So we're back into relativity there a little bit, aren't we?
2: We're back into the joys of relativity because you terrifying. can't see
1: you can't see it you can't see yeah. it rotating. But also, it's we are into we're into. I mean, there is a point beyond which every physicist goes from Stephen Hawking to Einstein. Einstein, by the way, referred to. We will come back to cycling. Einstein referred. To God as the old one, the Alte. That was that was the word he used. The old one. When he referred to the mystery, he referred to God as the the old one. And straight, I I think that the, the real kind of the thing that always makes me think about the old one and the presence of the old one is the fact that the sun and the moon, in their perspective from this planet, have the same or pretty much an identical diameter. Yeah so that so that the, uh, t- i mean what are the chances of that and what are the chances of the moon having a 28 day um mm. orbit around the sun no orbit around the earth and a 28 day day as well i mean it's just well, the numbers
2: are, yeah the numbers are always kind of just the numbers are annoying because they always end up making sense and always have a correlation but yeah even this morning i went out and, and walked the dogs at 8 a.m here and beautiful blue skies and the moon was very present in the sky and clear as i mean clear as day it was just you could see it he's like oh god that's amazing it's so beautiful and which you very rarely get it that big and clear in morning sunlight and i mean we we can claim to to know stuff about it but imagine if you didn't know stuff about it it was just sitting there it's kind of weird
1: yeah, it's, it's super weird And also, yeah, it's like we say, it's the same I mean, obviously yeah. it waxes and wanes, doesn't it? But it's mm. the same aspect everywhere yeah. Whether you're doing yeah. that in Alaska, South Africa, Mongolia, mm. Girona or Lewisham It's glued, yeah. glued to us yeah. Yeah. So Hey, what are you new? up to? You, you, you sent me a little video of, of your whole family at a fairgrounds today that Yeah, cool. it's the um,
2: Banyoles, the, the little town that we live adjacent to Has its some annual fiesta uh, this weekend So there's a big fair here and it happens once a year, and Archie and Harvey wanted to go down And meet their friends, and it's bonkers. And I was down there with Nicole because it's it's a classic fair, but as much as I know a classic fair, and Nicole said to me, "Um, this is do we get fairs like this in England?" And I was like, "I don't know," because it's all quite. I, I and I was like, "I don't know." I said uh, first, I said, "Yes," then I said, "No," and I said, "Actually, I don't know." Why? Why ask me? I don't know, and. But because there's loads of great rides, there's loads of cheap things. It's all a little bit sketchy. It's very big. It's incredibly noisy and and bright and 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 I was just like, oh no, this is quite strange. Actually, fairs. Do you get do you get big fairs like that, Ned? In yeah, the UK.
1: Yeah, 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 you, yeah. You do, and you always have done. And um and I, it what amazes me is that they still exist and they're kind of undiminished. And I just just recently, David, I was doing some commentary at Ealing Studios. That you and I know so well. I was doing some darts commentary at Ealing Studios. By the way, they've got fan- some fantastic new facilities that you'll Have they? come and enjoy. Have they? Yeah. Um, but, uh, like a cafe. I put, no, oh, oh, mate, honestly, they've got some new studios in a slightly different location. At <laughs> timeline, uh, their facility. I don't know why I'm giving them a plug on this podcast, but anyway, I just said their name out loud. Um, Anyway. <laughs> uh, but what, Timeline? Um, yeah, Timeline. <laughs> Can you sponsor us? <laughs> <Anyone>? Timeline? <laughs> um maybe the circus the, but the circus had just set up on ealing common again and um it mm. is kind of eye-catching because it's so anachronistic you know yeah. you kind of think this is a mad way This is a mad way for people to earn their living in the tw- in 2021 yeah. you know it's kind of sort and there's of one, cash there's money one...
2: buying tokens standing in queues in so was, quite sorry, sketchy slight... situations
1: Slight contradiction. That yeah. was a circus that set up on Ealing Broadway, yeah, yeah. which is you know, which is different from a fairground, um, yeah. obviously. But yeah, a fairground. Of course, there is a big fair that sets up on Blackheath every year. And toffee apples. Ever eaten a toffee apple, David?
2: Candy floss. I have. I've eaten. Yeah. I haven't eaten one in years. But it was candy floss going round. Yeah, candy Like stuff. little. And also watching my children getting cheated by rifles and yep. fishing rod and and hooks coming down. Yeah, and just cheaty, stuff and, cheaty just, stuff. and I was just like. It's really difficult to win here, guys.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you can't.
2: No, no talent or skill in the world can beat these guys.
1: I went into a penny arcade up in Whitley Bay a few weeks ago mm. with my family, and we 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 um we changed f- four pounds into two p coins and rammed them down the old penny. You know the old penny shifter yeah. things. Like <laughs> oh, that. they're great. Oh, they are brilliant. They are brilliant. Um, and uh, we managed to eventually. We we actually did pretty well. We won three bouncy balls. Uh, for no, our four pound, in, for our four pound investment, that's so that's really wasn't too good. bad. We we got loads of tokens, um, and then we passed a family on the way out. We passed a family on the way out where the little kid was saying, "I need more coins," to a mum, and the, the mum said, "I've already, you, I've already changed twenty quid." <laughs> it's, <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> oh, it's, mad, it's madness.
2: It's quite. It's it's madness. A, quite a good um, analogy for life, isn't it? It's a where you just don't know when it's gonna when it's gonna yeah. tip over. Just <laughs> got to keep pushing. What else is going on,
1: Ned? Well, I've just come back from Ireland, hence hence the title of this podcast, Never Stress Baal. Oh, so, so what were you doing there? I was, um, I've started filming. I can't really say, unfortunately, when or where exactly the film will be shown, but it will be shown, and it will be um, 99% sure free to air. Um, mm. So this is a, this oh, is a, that a, a film that y- hopefully you'll all be able to see. Um, I've just started working on a, a, a documentary, an hour-long documentary about the history of Irish cycling, and that has taken me to do the first couple of days of filming. I just came back late last night. Um, I'm going back um, in about a week's time. This time to interview um, Sean Kelly. Sean who, Kelly. Yeah, I, th- I swore blind that I wouldn't try and attempt the accent in this podcast, but I appear to have done just that. Um, but the well, one which sh-
2: we should also remind people that you do have. You you do have Irish blood running through your veins.
1: A so little bit, quarter. Yeah, quarter. Quarter, my, quarter significant. My, yeah, my grandmother... So I, che- I spent my... I mean, I'm, yeah, you can hear... Yeah, probably now I I'm, can hear I'm the, the, incredibly. The I'm, incre- I'm incredibly English, um, you know, for better or worse. That's where, I, where I've lived most of my life, apart from my German years. Um, but, weirdly, I have a quarter my, of my ancestry is Irish. And my, my granny lived in... Um, in Greystones uh uh Delgany in fact just south of Dublin and that was where we started filming just in the shadows Mm. of the Wicklow Mountains so for me it was I spent all my childhood summers there or weeks and weeks of every summer there um for years and uh it was it was wonderful to go back I had a great uncle her brother who lived up in the Wicklow Mountains as well they're both sadly long long since dead um but So I knew, I know this part of the world a little bit, but what blew my mind, David, was I was doing this filming up in, in the Wicklow Mountains, which, oh my word, they're beautiful. I, you know, as a kid, I never really took that in. But now going back, especially with the autumnal colours and the, the kind of, um, they are very heavily overgrown with fern. And this time mm. of year, the big fern is just going brown and smoky coloured and the low sunshine with the clouds scudding over. Wow, it's beautiful. But, you know, I was there, I would have been there in the early 80s having picnics with my family and all that sort of thing. And I would have had no idea that all around me, these roads were being used by, you know, the greats, hmm. by the greats, um, including no St- Stephen Roach, who was a Dubliner and they were his training roads, you know. and That's crazy. And um, all around me. But what? what we, you know, this is a developing story. And as I say, we're going off, for our next trip, we're going to go and spend a bit of time with Sean. Um, hopefully, in the coming in the coming weeks and everything, we're going to we're going to spend time with Stephen Roach and with um, with uh, what, Sam Bennett in one way or I another. Ask, can yeah. I ask what's the um
2: what's the desired outcome of it?
1: Um, well, to tell a little a little understood and little known story, at least mm. on these shores, by these shores, I mean the mm. UK. You know, we know yeah. the headlines, don't we? We know Kelly. We know mm. Roach. You may not know, David. I, I know you know a little bit about um, Shea Elliott, but you may not know in bit. kind of mm. in, in that much detail quite how important Shea Elliott was, um, who was the first Irish professional road racer. Mm. You know, in many ways we've spoken often, haven't we, about Brian Robinson? Um, he was the same the, period, wasn't it, Shea Elliott? Fifties. They completely six, overlapped, and, yeah, and not yeah. only that, but they 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 overlapped, and uh, they in fact. Do you remember on the Tour de France a, a few years ago? Um, we were there was a finish where Wout van Aert did that astonishing lead out for Dylan Groenewegen into a place mm. called Salon, Salon sur No, what was it called? Sureson No, Chalon sonne is that what it's
2: called? S o n e s o s o s a
1: o n e. Anyway, that do you remember that stage? And we'd had Brian Robinson on the phone, um, oh, yeah, talking, right. talking oh. about, and talking about because he'd won got, there.
2: And then the doc put footage over the top, didn't he?
1: Of Brian, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brian went on this amazing solo. I can't, I won't even begin to try and guess the the, the correct year, but it was the penultimate stage, no, stage twenty of the Tour de France. There were twenty two mm. stages that year, weirdly, um, mm. but it was stage twenty. Brian had gone on this amazing solo rampage and won that raid, um, like one hundred twenty k's or something, something crazy. Won the stage on his yeah. own into Chalon sur Son. Um, uh, but the ne- that, that inter- interesting detail about this: the very next day, he was at the back because he was suffering so much from yeah, his of previous day. Yeah, and he was he was spat out the back. And Shay Elliott, his teammate, who was a Dubliner, the first Irish professional and a prodigious rider in his own right. You know, you didn't get a place on that team I- unless you were one of the best in the world. Mm. Shea Elliott went back to pace him through the stage and try and get him inside the the time cut. And the two of them were just outside the time cut when they came over the line. And it was the penultimate stage of the Tour de France. It was 21st stage of 22. And Brian, because he, was, he just won the stage and because he was top 10 on GC, there was a rule that year that you can't be eliminated if you're in the top 10 of the GC. Ah, uh, the old days. So, I love that. So Brian, Brian was allowed to race into Paris And Shea was, Shea was and eliminated. Shea was eliminated. <laughs> oh, Having done all the work that day. So he never made it to Paris that year, um, but were you spoken about? That's interesting. Yeah, carry on. He yeah. uh, just a measure of how good he was, right? Just mm. a measure of how good this man was. He was the first Irishman to win a stage in the Tour de France. The first Irishman, in fact, the first English speaker to win uh, to wear the yellow jersey.
2: No, way. He ended what
1: year up was that? Oh, David, don't ask me. I, I, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you. It was, it was after the Roubaix stage, so it was... 1958. Uh, it was, it was 1963. Oh, man. Sorry, he won, yeah, he just won that one stage of the Tour de France, but it, with it came the yellow jersey, and it was over the cobbles into Roubaix, yeah? Huh. And, um, and he wore the yellow jersey for a handful of days, I think three days after that, Um Three years prior to that, he'd won a stage of the Giro d'Italia, and in 1962 and 1963, he won two stages of the Vuelta. So he got them all. Like you, David, he was mm. a you know, but long, long time before you, and mm. from a country with no pedigree in this um, in this sport whatsoever. Shay Shay Elliott did all that. He also won Omloop Het Volk, you know, oh, Newsblad yeah. as it's known. Now. I, I couldn't the- do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't do that. Um, and he finished second in the World Championships in 1962 <laughs> as well to to Jean Stablinski, who's his teammate who flicked him. Oh, Stablinski, um, legend. So he was proper. Yeah. He was proper. Yeah. Now he died in he died in 1971, fifty years ago. Holy exactly. Cow. So is there any kind
2: of has anybody got interviews
1: with him or anything? I've not oh. seen any footage. I mean, there is little bits and pieces of him racing with, you know, our researchers are working on that. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, of, actually,
2: just, just to jump right yeah. that of that generation, you never had to do the introspective interviews. You never had to go and be spoken to. You just did your sport and went back to your life. So Shaylet did all that. And then no one's never had to go and do interviews. There's no written kind of introspective thing. There's no uh, filmed interviews of him. Shay, tell us about that. Because didn't
1: have to do that. <laughs> and yeah. it's mad. you know, he he he, um, he 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 retired from racing, went to Brittany, and his post-racing career is kind of shrouded in some mystery. But he tried to open up a hotel or a cafe, I think, in Brittany. It didn't work. Um, he ended up in Ireland again, um, having blown his money from his racing career, one mm. way or another, on failed business ventures and, and returned to really quite a rough and ready part of really what was quite a deprived city still in the early 70s and became a panel beater again. His father then died and two weeks later, Shay Elliott was found dead, having um, been shot in mysterious circumstances without anyone involved by a shotgun, died of mm. shotgun wounds. Now, no one knows, no one really knows what happened because there were no witnesses, but um, I think the clear kind of understanding or the probability would suggest that Shea committed suicide. Uh, and what was really mm. amazing to be in Ireland a, a couple of days ago and to talk about Shay's demise at the age of 36 was, one, how important he was, a t- total trailblazer, a game-changer, you know, you could argue without Shea Elliot, there is no... There is no Kelly and Roach generation because he Mm. paved the way for them. Um, But also quite the cultural thing that still exists to some extent where suicide in for a Catholic in Ireland at that time was a mortal sin. And it's something something that brought would have brought potentially brought shame to the family and could not be talked about and certainly couldn't be given a name now as i say i want to stress no one knows really why Shay died or how Shea died but if that were the case and that is no one's kind of Mm. actually come up with any evidence to suggest it wasn't the case um it's it's extremely moving to me that his death remains the subject of whispers you know Mm. and we went to his we went to his grave which is uh, very close to where my aunt is buried um just in the uh, 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 the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains near the coast, just south of Bray. And um, I, I found it extremely moving. I found it, it extremely moving. Uh, yeah, I won't go into details, but his family, you know, they were kind of, they were one of those families where stuff happened to them and it wasn't great, you know. Mm. But I look at his, I'm looking at his picture now, go to his Wikipedia page and look at the picture of him, the portrait taken of him in his Raphael Geminiani Gim- kit from 1963, Look at that face, and um, you know, there's one of those. There's just one of those incredible. There's just one of yeah, those yeah. incredible stories, and he he really sits very central to this documentary. He looks this kind of story. super Irish as well, doesn't he? I mean, there's a touch of that kind of. He's
2: got that Irish kind of grin, that mischievous grin.
1: He's got the yeah. twink. He, I mean, this is we're resorting to cliches here, but he does. You know yeah, how Roach has a, twink, a twinkle in his yeah, eye. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, there it's as well, good. isn't it? It's, it's really interesting. And this is us straying into cycling because I saw one of your tweets this week about uh, about that tragic story of Bahamontes' teammate.
1: Juan um, Campillo. Can I tell you about how that came about, me even having heard of Juan and Campillo?
2: I, I'd love to because I've had the privilege of meeting Bahamontes. He gave me kind of... And he's,
1: he's amazing, isn't
2: he? Yeah. And when I saw that and it's just going just then carry on that story is that whole generation. And we were just talking, we started this podcast with Tali Pogacar and there's, we can consider it realistic that he would be offered 18 million. There's a generation before that many of them ended up deprived or killing themselves or destroying themselves. <laughs> like this sport was pretty hardcore for a very long time, for a century. And, uh, and this story is, I, I read it and I was like, oh, come on, that's the sport I went into. It still resonated with all of that, that kind of darkness.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, so after we'd finished filming at, at Shea Elliot's um, grave, literally, I, I, we hadn't driven more than a mile away from the, from the graveyard, down this tiny little road. And we, we had to go back on ourselves because we missed the turning and missed the turning. And we found the home of Peter Crinian. Peter is pretty much the same age as Shay would have been had he survived. So he's well into his eighties now. Peter was the second Irish pro who no one remembers. Right. But he was a hitter. He was an absolute hitter. Peter came out to, by the now the clouds had skimmed over. This is a couple of days ago and it was almost like the temperature had dropped 10 degrees and it was almost beginning to sleet. And Peter came out as this sprightly man in his mid eighties. I think Peter is. And he came out and he welcomed us all and we stood in his driveway and for 20 minutes, he just did not let up. He was talking about this, that. It was a stream of consciousness, not in not in the remotest sense, incoherent, but just fascinating. And it was all about, and the memories were rushing up to the surface because he knew that we'd just been to see his friend mm. and his teammate Shay Elliott's grave you know, just mm. down there. And, and these, these memories bubble to the surface. And Peter, is a fan- fantastic guy. He just, At one point, the only memory that I kind of really took away with and thought, I need to find out more of that, he started talking about, because he was friends with Bahamontes, the man you've met, David. Bahamontes, Federico Bahamontes is still alive. Um, Brian Robinson was very close to him as well. They were all teammates here. Um, Peter Crinian rode for the same team. And he, he still maintains contact with, ba- with Federico Bahamontes. Yeah. And, but he said, Bahamontes, he said to us, Bahamontes had this domestique, right? This guy who rode for him, Juan Campillo. And he would, and he, Peter was laughing, he was saying, he would, he would, he, we just laughed at Campillo. He used to have to wash, he roomed with Bahamontes, but he did all his laundry for him. He got him his food, he did everything for him, he was just his little gopher. And in the peloton, he was just there. And sometimes you'd see, you'd be riding along and Bahamontes would go, hey! Capillo Capillo, like that, and look round. And we'd all start going, we'd all start, he'd come up the side and he'd come up towards his leader and we'd all whisper, we'd all go, burro, 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 at him. Which I <laughs> donkey, think they, donkey, means donkey. donkey, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah. this guy was just this, yeah. I mean, it's kind of bullying in the peloton. I was, yeah,
2: because as soon as you were saying that from my days in the peloton, if somebody, a leader was shouting to everyone would go, Campillo, Campio. campio. They just mimic the leader and take the mickey. But the fact they got to the, Budo is good. <laughs> you know, yeah, at least it gave him a name.
1: Budo. Yeah. So there he Jeez. was, Budo, and that, yeah. and that's, and so just to complete the story, the, the tweet that I did, I found out subsequently that, um, just by looking into his history, and it's there on his Wikipedia page, it's not hard to find, that he he was killed the day before he, post racing was going to open a cafe, a restaurant in Andorra, where he came from. Um, mm. He was run over by a truck. Mm. Not only that, but he left a six-year-old son uh, behind, who was o- was orphaned at that point because uh, Campio's wife had been uh, had died in childbirth. Mm. Good Lord, I wonder what happened to him. So there we go. And um, yeah, cycling it's quite man, a, it's quite an odyssey, this David. Yeah, yeah. And then, then the next day, we were in Belfast, right? And here's we're going to stray a little bit from from cycling here, David, because I did a little pre-recorded little segment here right good i have this i did not know i've spoken to you briefly about my my irish grandmother south of the border yeah from near Mm. dublin and my great uncle norris from whom i get my name because let's face it i'm called norris (laughs) that's his fault great uncle norris um it's not his fault um, no i don't know someone someone called him norris it's his dad well yeah and my great aunt Jennifer, who I all knew, they're all they're all they're all long since dead, unfortunately. And but they are descended from a family I knew nothing about, nothing about at all, except that there was some hint of the the three of them, actually there were four of them, but one of them died a bit younger. Had between them managed to squander really quite a significant fortune, right? <laughs> now, <laughs> suffice to say, t- believe me nothing really remained of their fortune right and certainly it's never washed up on the shores of lewisham right (laughs) but that was always the kind of the understanding that i'd grown up with it was literally only this summer that um various relatives started to put flesh on the bones and to investigate just where my irish family came from originally and it wasn't dublin it was north of the border in belfast
0: from Belfast town I'm on me way On a ship that was built for the two of the strait Oh, I leave me friends And the land where I was born And I won't come back till me fortune is made.
1: So I'm, I'm right in the middle of Belfast, which is a city I've never been to before, I'm ashamed to say, um, save for childhood memories of um when we used to cross over from scotland where we visited my other grandparents um every summer we used to cross over strand to Larne, and then we used to drive south uh to just south of dublin where my irish grandmother lived and um the, the, back then without the motorways that used to involve as far as i remember driving pretty much through belfast at the height of the troubles and i, I do remember the checkpoints and you know, my, my parents or my dad getting quite nervous behind the uh, wheel of a car as the, the car was searched and everything. That's a long time ago. Obviously, Belfast has changed immeasurably since then. Um, and, and this is my first visit as an adult to Belfast, and I'm kind of blown away. It's a beautiful morning. Uh, it's quite cold. The sun's uh, just come up about half an hour ago. And it's kind of orange sky and clouds scudding over the hills around uh, the city. And I've uh, I stayed last night in a city centre hotel right on the water uh, near the Titanic quarter. And I just did a bit of Google Earth kind of study that took about four minutes um, to establish that a few hundred metres down the river or up the river, I should say, the River Langham, uh, is a plot of land uh, totally undeveloped and empty where there used to be a massive factory called the Sirocco Works. Um, which turned out um, fans, ventilation systems, uh, and I suppose basic air conditioning units and drying um, machines as well, and various other bits of it. It's a huge engineering concern, and it was founded by a man called Samuel Davidson, who uh, Sir Samuel Davidson, I think he was knighted, um, who and they were the one of the biggest employers in uh, in Belfast for a long time, right next to the Harland and Wolff um, shipyards as well. And um, I, I honestly only this year have I discovered that this factory existed and that uh, he he's a relatively close-ish. <laughs> Relative of mine, Samuel Davidson, um, I, I haven't quite figured out who he is, whether he's, whether he's my great-great-grandfather great-great-grand, or great-great-uncle or something like that, because the family tree gets a little bit um, confused, although one of my uncles, I think, is, is a bit better apprised of it than me, and perhaps he knows better. But what I do know is that my grandmother, who lived in Dublin, uh, just south of Dublin, had three siblings, one of whom died... Uh, quite young in the, t- in, the in his twenties, uh, I believe, of tuberculosis. Um, but her other two siblings, my uncle Norris from whom, Norris Davidson, from whom I get my name, uh, who lived, who was a documentary filmmaker for RTE uh, and an author, he wrote novels. Um, quite an eccentric man, who lived in the this tiny, tiny village in the middle of the Wicklow Mountains. And my and. My great-aunt Jennifer, who had been an actor uh, of medium notoriety, I think, not, not a stellar career, uh, on the stage in, in Dublin. And my, gre- uh, my grandmother, Veronica, who, for reasons unknown to me, used to call herself... D- was known as David, with an E on the end. So God, it sounds odd, doesn't it? I just took it for granted. I had a Granny David. Um, so they were, they were Davidsons, and they via a couple of generations, kind of inherited and frittered away uh, at least a portion of the wealth uh, that came from this massive factory in Belfast. And here I am, just standing here by the side of the road, looking at it. Um, This, this, uh, well, it's a wasteland, really. It's waiting to be developed. Apparently, developers are going to move in and turn it into flats, and God knows what, pumping 400 million into it or something like that. But at the moment, all I can see are the brick perimeter walls and there's a one chimney still standing. It's like a kind of early 20th century chimney from the works. It's the only real vestige of what was here before. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of really strange to think that I'm descended from the people who used to own this factory via a slightly circuitous route. And there we go.
2: Just to be clear, yeah, you come from great pedigree.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean,
2: I mean, I, I'm not talking about the the the, the familial re- relationships, but there's uh, the, you talked before about the twinkling and <laughs> eye. There's something that happens, Ned, in your life on <laughs> on both sides of the 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 channel, the Irish channel. That's uh, yeah, it's quite interesting.
1: I, yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I. listen, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because what, what what, right do we have to what our ancestors did? Or, our, you know, it's just, it sits there as a kind of fact that intrigues me. Oh, it kind of blows my mind a little bit because morphic, I do remember. Morphic resonance. What's that mean?
2: Ah, it's this kind of weird, kind of sort of a little bit in the fringe stuff about, you know, sometimes when a phone rings and you know, you kind of know who's calling you before you answer it or even look at it mm. Mm. it's we have connections to things that are that are very hard to, to understand why and the idea of morphic resonances even it, with your genetics with your D- dna it's we are we've always been the same people so we'll always have the same we'll always do the same things we'll connect to each other more we'll and that can that means that it kind of transcends the moment it transcends what we consider to be how we communi- communicate to each other now. And I, I think it's really interesting. And I think we shouldn't kind of, we should never say that we have no connection to our ancestors. Because no. probably we do, because we are the same yeah. people. Where We have a morphic resonance. You
1: spoke... You you know, yeah. it diminishes, the echo diminishes with passing yeah. generations, doesn't it? But you, yeah. uh, you know, we said this on the podcast before, but I'll say it again, because mm. we're talking about Ireland. This is mm. Never Stray's file. Um, by the way, do you know what file is? You had it explained to you. So
2: Vitor, I saw it because we were in the studio together in Drona and I was like,
1: oh, cool. What's that?
2: And he, Vitor, our Brazilian brilliant designer, <laughs> yeah. explains to me what file was. Yeah. but Can I you remember? Him. No. No. Uh,
1: I can't remember really but there's a thing called I remember eating this as a kid my 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 mum my and dad loved it and um it's mm. potato fale but I think you can also have soda fale is a is a flat bread that you um you you rise in the pan yeah so you put it on a grill or in a pan mm. and you don't put it in the oven I think um and as a result because you're putting it in a pan it's circular yeah mm-hmm and to you don't just flap it out like a pancake because it's quite thick, more like a tortilla. But it's a kind of bread or potato bread, mm-hmm. and you cut it into quarters, right? So that's why it has that distinctive kind of, you know, dairyly cheese shape sort of thing. Yeah. And Triangles. I think it's it's derived. The word file is derived from the Gallic word um, fardel, which means I think a quarter. So there you go. That's what's why there it's called far. Um
2: Never But yeah, we were just uh, talking about that kind of idea where you know. It's interesting, but Dan Martin's
1: pedal stroke. Yeah, vis a vis Stephen Roach's. Pe- that's why I was. He was it. never Dan was taught
2: it. He was never taught it.
1: But he, he was he never has it.
2: it. It's innate. He has it, and it's. Um, we have these innate things that uh, you know. One of the lovely things with this is the gait that, that people walk. How people walk is often just how your parents walked, and the way people walk is the most interesting thing. And I think pedaling is the same way I see with Archie, our oldest, he pedals just like me. Brilliant. And it's just like, yeah, and we all have our kind of things that we can't escape from. And, and I say escape and with all due respect, but it's, um, we're stuck with them
1: where Archie's, you know, Been fortunate enough to inherit genetically a a, a beautiful pedal stroke from a Mm. high-performing athlete. I I, have—I—I've inherited my dad's washing-up face. (laughs) The face that my dad pulls up when he pulls when he when he washes up is exactly the same face that I pull when I wash up, (laughs) and I'm very conscious of it. And uh, but I've never said that out loud. Actually, I've never admitted Uh, it uh, either to him or anyone else. Do you grimace a little bit?
2: Do you just kind of frown a little bit? I let my
1: I let my lower jaw just hang open.
2: Ah. Like Tony Martin time trialing,
1: Tony Martin time trial face. That's what me and my dad use when we're washing up.
2: Just David. F- yeah. The
1: last <laughs> thing. The last thing I want to talk about t- on today's pod about ancestry and stuff I learned while I was in mm. Ireland this- on this particular trip. Right. <laughs> we discovered. We discovered when we were driving along the coast, the Antrim coast yesterday. Having finished work, we they, they got, the guys I was working with were were taking me to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to belfast city airport when one of them they were both irish irish men i won't proper say who they irish. were really, proper irish uh, they're proper irish so there was a lot of you know there was a lot of where well, you just feel linguistically inadequate because irish <laughs> irish people <laughs> i it. mean just the expressiveness with which you're uh, you know uh, just those wonderful things of phrase it's like an opera and you just feel, you know, I, I was sat in the back as well and they were just, they were just riffing in the front and I was just listening to this operetta, you know, this kind of like, there's a word for it in an Italian opera where two people are ju- jousting, you know, is it divertimento or something? I don't know. Um, And it was like that. And one of them, one of them said, have you heard? <laughs> it's so tempting to try and do the accent, but I'm not going to do it. They said, have you heard that? Adolf Hitler's brother worked at the Shelbourne Hotel in Dublin. <laughs> it's already good. <laughs> and the other guy said, no, he didn't. What are you talking about? He, go, I did, he did. Adolf Hitler's older brother was a hotel porter at the Shelbourne, which is like the big hotel in, in the central <laughs> of Dublin, St. Stephen's Square, I think. And there was a lot of like, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. And so, therefore, we had to wait till we got a bit of 4G connection before, you know, you could get a bit of Googling going and the proof. And they found on Dublin City Council's homepage the most amazing story, which tells tells a story of Alois Hitler, Adolf Hitler's half-brother, who started, for reasons unknown, to work at the Shelbourne Hotel in 1909, where he met... A very young Irish woman called Bridget Dowling. Okay. And uh, okay. they married they married and they had a they had a child, right? Oh, no. And their child was christened William Paddy Hit- William, William, William William This is absolutely true. William Paddy Hitler <laughs> And there's a massive, there are huge and fascinating holes in this story. But we know for a fact that William Paddy Hitler, in the interwar years, ended up as a young man traveling to Germany. And by the 1930s, he'd ended up in Germany, William Paddy Hitler. So he is technically Hitler's nephew, right? William Paddy Hitler. And... He showed, this this is, I'm quoting now from the website. Paddy Hitler showed himself to be an opportunist. He he travelled over to Germany to exploit his connections (laughs) after Hitler became Chancellor. The pair had a stormy relationship, but Uncle Adolf, Uncle Adolf found Paddy work in a bank. He later became a car salesman for Opel, which is a German car salesman, and he began to copy his uncle's mannerisms, including the Fuhrer's pose with crossed arms, and he even grew a similar moustache. Adi Hitler was in demand at society dinner parties in Germany. Adolf, however, described him as, quote, his loathsome nephew.
2: (laughs) Imagine, Imagine imagine that's I, it's like a wes anderson film i mean you couldn't uh, it because it's too controversial but
1: it- <laughs> imagine imagine adolf hitler describing you as loathsome that's off the scale isn't it anyway hit demanded- that's a good thing Hitler demanded that he become a German citizen if a German citizen if he wanted a top job. Fearing a trap, Paddy then fled to fled Germany in a hurry. <laughs> this is the bit that absolutely we almost crashed the car at this point because it's so brilliant. <laughs> Back in England, he wrote an article for Look magazine entitled <laughs> "Why I Hate talk, My Uncle." Can um- we talk about Adolf? Basically, it's even better than that though. Why I hate my uncle. <laughs> And today, still disbelieving that this ever could have been published, I found it on the internet. It's not hard to find. Look Why magazine in 1939, before the outbreak of the war, it's published just before the war in Look magazine, published an article by William Paddy Hitler <laughs> entitled Why I Hate My Uncle. And it features some absolutely extraordinary detail. Um, quote, being very close to my father at the time, he... Uh, autograph this picture for me, Adolf Hitler. We had cakes and whipped cream, Hitler's favourite dessert. I was struck by his intensity, his feminine gestures, and that there was dandruff on his coat. <laughs> and this is the best one of all. This is the best one of all. Um... This is Hitler's, and it's, it's all accompanying photographs. This is Hitler's new Berster's Garden home, which I first saw in 1936. I drove there with friends and was shown into the garden. Hitler was entertaining some very beautiful women at tea. When he saw us stride up, sl- when, a, when he saw us, he strode up, slashing a whip as he walked and taking the tops off flowers. He, t- <laughs> he took that occasion to warn me to never again mention that I was his nephew, then he returns to his guests, still viciously cracking his whip. <laughs> oh I don't know what <laughs> else I can say, David. I don't know. What I, I else think can
2: it say. paints a perfect picture of um, the Paddy. Why, Will- William not Paddy, if that family uh, used the surname Hitler anymore?
1: <laughs> oh my word!
2: Yeah, um, what a it went from Ireland to yeah. fascist Germany. Yeah, I love it
1: and back again and back again yeah. so we'll do another I, I, as i say am yeah beginning of november i'm heading back to ireland david and, and um hopefully i might even get a little should i try and get a little exclusive with king kelly if i can
2: oh god i'd love it i'd love to have a chat i'd love us to have a chat with king if we could do a kind of you sitting there in the video talking to him and we could have a, a conversation because i got okay. a lot of time for king kelly it's, but I'd like
1: to talk to him about anything other than cycling, wouldn't you? I'd like to. I'd like for him well, to know. never. Yeah, stray it's far. true.
2: because I've never actually spoken to. He's he's a dark horse.
1: Oh, man! I, I he's genuinely super
2: dark. don't. Stephen went off and did his things. King Kelly just cruised around and loves it still. There's kind of he does. He's love like it. An, he's like yeah, I say this with all due respect. He's like Eddie Merck's soft. Because Eddie Merckx cruises around and does his thing. But there's no kind of depth to Eddie Merckx. It, he's amazing. I love him. He's But Sean Kelly, no one's ever actually kind of found Fracked out him. what's going on there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he's funny. He's Kelly is so funny. He's, he? you j- know he's
2: just like, you just see, he just walks around. We're at the media places at Tour de France and he just cruises around back straight. He's always yeah. got a bit of a skip to his step. He's always yeah. got a smile. He always puts his hand on your shoulder. Yeah. It's like he's yeah. he's just King Kelly. but He's in control, look, isn't he? Yeah. But when totally you look back at his career and you know, when I mean, you're a bit of a, a geek like you, the two of us are, he was a weapon, oh, wow. an absolute weapon for over a decade, just destroyed people. He won eight nieces back to back.
1: Yeah. Just without interruption. I'll have that. Just I'll have, do it again. 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 again mean, do it again.
2: Jesus, and and that's just a. a and also, tiny little snippet we know career. about the
1: we know about the Vuelta that he won, and I was reminded mm. of this um, while I was out in Ireland. He could have won, nearly did, should have won a second one before that, right? Except for he had that massive boil on his ass, didn't he? That made him abandon. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, he was. Oh, I was just ridiculously good. He was. Yeah, you wouldn't anyway. want
2: to, um, yeah, mess with Kelly. No. You take do you, you take King Kelly to war.
1: Yeah.
2: All oh, every time.
1: But very good. Yeah. All right, this so is you'll super be long. There. This is a super long pod. So we should probably um wrap it oh, up. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. I'll speak to you, you. Uh, at some point, yeah. Bye. Okay. Bye.